Hello, welcome to Everyday Wild. I'm Daniel Havey and my co-host is... Agarone McLaughlin. Hi, Dan. How are you today? Good. Pleased to be here. Good. Um, so today we're going to be chatting with Libu Hornong. She's an equine-assisted psychotherapist and she'll be talking about some of her experiences growing up with horses and I suppose you know, that kind of relationship or relational style that um, equine therapy explores with people. I was, I was thinking, so, I mean, many of us have animals in our lives, dogs or cats. Those relationships can be uh, quite complex. Um, often they're quite close, but it's interesting to reflect that until quite recently, we actually all had horses in our lives, or most of us did, um, because they were so dominant as transport. Um, and so there was a, a whole lot of relationships with horses going on. There's a, a way of relating to horses that is about taming or subduing, or we could say dominating. And that's obviously not the approach with equine assisted therapy. You could say it's more relational and respectful and, and indeed is about exploring how you relate to the world through the relationship with the horse. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of um, a spectrum between those styles that is there's power relations in in every relationship, um, most explicitly between humans and animals in in the culture that I was brought up in. Um, but uh, there are always kind of moments of respect and learning, um, even if uh, not promoted, they they happen anyway. So um, I think you know not having those horses around. Is, is probably a great loss for, for human culture, for our culture. And perhaps we'll explore why that is so in the chat after the interview. Um, or we might talk about something completely different. I thought it was very interesting how Lupu mentioned that um, she was always mesmerised by animals and uh, in the equine-assisted therapy, she's talking about the peace that uh, that interaction with them can bring to the self and to others. But yep. it's fascinating for me that for her, it certainly didn't start out that way. No. And there was a really powerful incident that uh, was a catalyst for learning to pay attention. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, let's get into that then. That'll be interesting to hear. Um, and we'll catch you when we get back and talk about what we heard. Okay, well, um, currently I'm sharing equine-assisted psychotherapy as an experience with people where people come up to this place called Wildflowers where I live and yep. there's a couple of horses that live here and they're able to share their experience with the horses in a way that the horses give uh, really honest and non-judgmental feedback and it's really brings a lot of peace to myself and others to share this. So, you know, it's taken mm. me quite a long time to come to this, but I've always been really mesmerised by what animals can share with us and what we can learn from listening a lot deeper to the animals around us and listening out a lot more for their needs rather than what we're wanting them to do or how we want them to behave towards us. And yeah. um, I think, you know, in a way this came from a really long time ago. I was really mesmerised by bushland and 
just the beauty of animals and nature and being with them and walking through this um, like a, a patch of scrub that I could listen to the knowledge of animals to know what was around. For example, like, you know, if a flock of birds start tweeting really loudly um, and, you know, looking at a certain place on the ground, it's very easy to know that there's quite probably there's a snake there. And just to use that knowledge to go, I will not walk in that spot because those birds are telling me not to walk there. And I think, you know, developing that listening with horses has really helped with um, just feeling a lot more connected to nature and to our natural selves as well, to my natural self. So, yeah, it's been a great space. When did you first meet horses? Well, when I was pretty young, um, we had this horse called Bluebell who was like a Shetland pony who really hated people and um, I was lying in the grass staring at butterflies and dreaming and the next thing I realised like this monster of a horse was trampling me in the stomach and it was quite a a shocking experience and it really did hurt Um, and it was a real jolt from just that dreamy state to brutal reality and um, it just kind of really made me notice the power of horses. And I think, like, I, I became quite obsessed with Bluebell after that and followed him about, wanted to know a lot more about him and um, why he was so angry. And I think he just really hated kids because, like, kids had really wanted him to be more like a, a cute toy than a little pony and he was actually just a a very um, big guy in a little suit so you know he was he's quite well pissed off so yeah he he um, ended up doing all sorts of violent things to us um, to let us know that too much was too much and um, in hindsight I'm sort of looking back on that and just going uh, he was using a lot of language to let us know to back off but we just weren't using our senses to listen to him and to to do what he needed us to do so it's interesting though that you were being quite passive at the first initial attack which is really what it was he attacked you yeah he did he fully attacked me and I think it was just um, at last there was an opportunity to get back. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's a good point though. Um, it's not always what horses do. Usually what they do do is feedback in response to something that has been done to them. So, yeah, he was a bit unique like that. I don't think we can say all horses are the same. But, yeah, so I believe so been... he was the catalyst to this interest. Mm. <laughs> just just going back to that experience, that there was, I guess there's a lot of retrospect and hindsight around your, the telling of that. Do you remember what you thought was happening when it was happening? Yeah, I kind of, um, all I, I was sort of like that really um, sense of from dreaming to pain um mm. and yeah it was really 
it was a, a real leveler. It was sort of the, um, I suppose, the kind of physical reality just barging in on something that was much more fantastical. And uh, I was testing things a bit to sort of go, wouldn't it be wonderful just to lie in the horse paddock and dream and watch butterflies? And <laughs> it's like, hey, the realities are <laughs> like... <laughs> You might actually get stumbled upon. <laughs> so yeah, so that's that's a harsh teacher. Yeah. Yeah, I think your awareness can keep you safe, and you know you can choose your places to where, um, yeah. where and how interaction with animals happens. Like, not all of them are, are beautiful. Some of them are, are more realistic. So yeah, mm-hmm. but I do have some very beautiful dreamy. Uh, moments to share that were also in the presence of horses so um, I just like to begin with that one because that one was just um, very earthy and real. Yeah um, actually and I'm really looking forward to hearing those dreamy experiences just before we do um, that re- relationship as it developed like how, how was it you know towards the end I suppose uh, or how did it develop over time? I think I think in a sense we made a lot more peace together, but it was a process of um, me often um, expecting a fantastic friendship because I'd just tried to uh, woo Bluebell with apples or, you know, um, gifts or um, special things and I would generally get kicked or, uh, yeah, yeah, bit bitten or... Another thing he used to do was while riding him, he'd run under the washing line and leave you dangling in it and just really wow. love, lovely things like that. But I think he was just, yeah, it was give and take. I, 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 don't, I don't think um, he was trying to do anything other than serve his needs. And, yeah, so I, I found if I had a huge love for him um, and these Small scuffs and scrapes were not a deterrent at all. They kind of mm. made him even more exciting. It was part of his character to be a bit edgy and dangerous in a sense. Yeah, which sort of made him like this really hairy goblin around the place, which was like, yeah, so good to have there. Mm. It was great. All right. Um, and so you developed relationships with other horses over the years. Is this where the dreamy stuff comes in? Yeah, we had, um, after Bluebell, there were some other horses on the property and that was when us kids got a bit older and my sister and I used to go out and have moonlight flits with the horses, which was one of the most beautiful memories ever was um, we'd actually dome sheets um, and sort of dress up quite elvishly in these sheets and gracefully glide out into the darkness and um, then the moonlight would sort of, the moon would come up over the hill and we'd go up into the horse paddock and just mill around with them and um, sometimes even get on them and just, it was just such an incredible thing just to be with them with no bridles or anything like that and go for a walk and then have them follow and uh, we kind of felt like it was, um, I felt very strongly that we were 
meeting them on a deeper level, on kind of the spirit level. And mm -hmm. that was, um, it was really, it stayed with me for a very long time. It was good. Sometimes we'd, um, my sister would take a flute as well and play a bit of a tune and uh, we'd even sing. And we've got this, had this very long track that went up through the bush and we'd mill around with the horses and they'd just be like shadows just appearing and disappearing in the trees. And once mm. we were walking up along the track and my sister was playing the flute and we just rounded the corner and we bumped into my dad. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad goes, oi. And we just realised that he was actually on a moonlight flip as well and um, he was out there doing something similar to us, like just being out in the moonlight, soaking up, listening to the sounds and there was us with our horse friends and, yeah, mm. it sort of said something on a few levels about, I think, like, our ancestry and what sort of awakens in us when we're around the right circumstances because yes. we, we could even see in his eyes that he was on the same trip that we were on and that uh -huh. was amazing. Oh, like I just remember feeling so alive and just all my senses so alive and I think that's often what animals feel like, like that's what the state they're in hypervigilance of what's all around you noticing yeah. and the slightest little twig cracking is information mm -hmm. and just mm -hmm. sensing that with every part of your skin and I think being around the horses first before going on this walk really put us um they really guided us into a state that was similar at the time to I think what they were experiencing what strikes me listening to you say that actually is that, you know, uh, in some respects, horses are prey animals, aren't they? And and so they're they have to be awake to things. Um, they have to be very alert. You know, it just draws me back a little bit to that experience of you being dreamy in the field, and and then all of a sudden being attacked. Uh, you know, it, it was it was definitely a kind of wake up kind of thing or or perhaps just something more antagonistic I don't know but yeah it's interesting to compare those experiences yeah it, it's an interesting I, I, I view to look at that because like when when you look at what the little bluebell was doing in the paddock it was almost like he was the predator yeah um, at the time and I suppose like you know Horses are prey animals and so they stay in their herds and they have to be um, hypersensitised to what's around them. Um, mm. But he was like, you know, he was the one that made the first move there. <laughs> and mm. so, you know, I suppose I just wonder even whether he was some sort of a lion or tiger in a horse's body who was just <laughs> really furious that he was lumped with this horse form. I don't know. But um, he really did defy uh, his one one creature that really did defy the the idea that yeah. prey animals, I guess. It it strikes me that you know in horse little horse communities, there are horse elders, and 
and as with human communities, some of the things that elders would teach um, would not be pleasant. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It would be difficult, yeah. They use their mouths and their teeth and, like, you know, they can deal out quite a a walloping um, blow um, and that, yeah, that's communication and that is also them uh, sharing their ranking and, um, you know, often the horse elder is actually the mare, so it's a matriarch and um, she can be super fierce. Like I had one of those horse elders recently um, was lucky enough to know one um, who was really very beautifully kind and gentle in every way but if she had to deal anything out to another horse it would be quite fierce and um, yeah that that is very true yeah and I think too like in the sense of um, herd herd knowledge and like you know Mm -hmm. the whole herd has a kind of a a herd brain and I think in a way that's similar to flocks of birds and that's how um, the elders move the entire herd by just um, not just being the leader but knowing how to lead through um, sharing uh, an energy with the entire herd uh, yeah. yeah. So it um it, le- it lends itself to collective mind um more so than say you know the panther mind or something like that. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah. I, I heard moves in a very different way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we humans, I'm not really sure what we are. I think we're shapeshifters, and we we kind of um, connect with various animal forms. Our identities are, we, we are mm. shifting in and out, whereas uh, animals have some more different different governance to identity, I think. I, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, um, about Benny. Yeah, Benny was the elder mare that a uh, really beautiful presence and yep. um, Benny yep. was the most incredibly intuitively beautiful um, creature and she had like just a way of being with where I fell into a space of being able to view the world from, um, it's really actually hard to put words to, like, um, in multi-leveled ways while I was in her presence and okay. she she brought a sense of care to everything she did. For example, like if I was feeling anxious, she would sit down next to me and I was able to sit on her and play violin and she'd walk about and it sounds highly domesticated, but she wasn't at all. She was extremely wild and mm-hmm. very connected into her own um, horse instincts while she did mm-hmm. all these things. But um, when she passed away, it was, was quite a full-on thing because I had woken up all night listening to that storm and feeling extremely worried about her. 
I kept waking up going, I must go out, get the torch, get um, my ranger out into the paddock and see if she's okay. And I kept stopping myself going, no, that's stupid. Like, you know, um, go back to sleep. That's just been paranoid and, you know, all the horses have what they need and they'll be fine. But in the morning I went straight out to the paddock again and two horses ran up to greet me and not Benny and I knew straight away and I ran all over the paddock looking for her and couldn't find her and then eventually the two horses ran to me and between this point and then back to me and between this point and they were actually showing me where she was and I finally walked over to look at what they were taking me to and sure enough I found Benny lying in on the ground and she just up by all appearances seemed to be dead but when I came to her, she lifted her head and I ran down the hill and then rang the vet and went back to her. And when I came back to her, I took off all my jackets and everything and wrapped her up and I could see she was cold. And lo and behold, she stood up. And it was just like, it was just the most incredible thing that she had just been dead one second then and then come back. And then she followed me down the hill where I took her into our garage and we put her on a drip and all sorts of um, things to revive her, lots of hot water bottles and everything to help her come back. And she just looked at me with this incredible, bright, loving eye the whole time. And if ever I tried to leave her just to go and get a cup of tea or whatever, she'd follow, try to follow me. And all day long she had that look that was almost like a young horse looking at me with such such mm. a bright eye. But um, I realised uh, with the vet's report from tests that part of her body had already shut down and that there was really no way that she could live. So I walked with her out and this was really an incredible thing because I actually started to realise that she was trying to help me to cope with the idea of her leaving and she already knew that she had gone and she was hanging about to try and guide me into the idea that I needed to come to terms with that. And as soon as I realised that, I asked the vet that we could put her down when she'd chosen her place. And Mm. um, Benny and I walked out together and just where there was like almost a circular glade of trees, she turned to me and she stopped. And I kept asking her to move forward and she would not. And at that point, the moon just started to rise above the hill behind into a huge, full, round orb. And her Mm. face alighted to look up at it. And I said, the time is now. And I said, "Um, Benny, you, you have taught me that I've got to let you go now. And that's how best I can love you. And so the vet 
euthanized her and just as she put the needle in, I saw this really powerful image of Benny galloping into the moon mm. and Benny's body sank with this sigh, huge sigh of relief, virtually into my arms. And it was, it was the most uplifting and beautiful thing that I've ever experienced in the presence of an animal. Um, and the odd thing is that the presence of her is still so warmly around the property like and I find this hard to explain but the warmth of her presence is is very much here um, and I feel that on a daily basis and so I just I just know that what she has gifted me is well, actually, it's going to take me some time to piece all of that together, you know, and I do think back over what she brought into my life, how she brought it into my life, how even fearful I was when I first met her. And as an old horse, sort of the level of knowledge that she had was, um, yeah, something that I can't even find the words to describe. No. So. Yeah, it was a really, really amazing experience knowing Benny. That's a beautiful story. Um, yeah, it such an incredible, profound experience. And and I, I was thinking, I mean, there's this lovely connection to the moonlit walk in that. Also, that sense, or and this in some ways goes to what we're talking about with, you know, animal identity, a sense that, she'd let you into the herd or that you were part of hers and she was part of yours? Yeah. Yeah, there was a sense that that, that experience was was really was shared. But I think in, in some ways she felt like um, I was exclusively hers in some respects. Okay. Um of service to her rather than her, her being of service to me. But, yeah, yeah. I was certainly um, a part of her herd. In some ways I, I felt that um, she might have appreciated me more than the other horses, but maybe I am wrong. I don't know. Um, so she was much more aggressive with the other horses than she was with me. So Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. She well, you were special. Never trampled me while I was uh, lying in yeah. the paddock. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> and so, you still feel that presence now. That um, that that connection. That's yeah. an ongoing thing. I mm. do like you know. Mm. Sometimes I think um, but I'm just entertaining myself. But I think I hear her. Um, yeah. She's to let out. Uh, uh, blood-curdling cry at night sometimes she was the only horse that ever I've ever known to do that like sometimes in her sleep she would jolt and just let let out this blood-curdling shrieking sound it was so loud and I still hear that and sometimes I hear a softer nickering sound and 
again, it's like, was that the wind or was that Benny? Um, and I also feel a very warm, warm presence. Like, you know, she had this essence that was almost like the essence of a, a really fine red wine or um, some kind of timber that you hear in music that was part of her being. And that sense is there really profoundly around the property, um, mm. more, more so in some parts than in others. Um, but yeah. Oh, what do you think that is? Yeah, I just wonder, you know, um, I sometimes wonder that whether, you know, her, her energies have been reabsorbed in other living things in the uh -huh. place. And I, like, yep. I, I would like that idea. Sometimes yeah, I like that. Think, yeah, and there's also more to that in that I'm still unraveling what it was that she had to show or teach me in in my life and in my mm. trajectory. And so, in a sense, I hold her presence in place because I still need it too. I think <laughs> potentially, which makes her um, an ancestor in a way, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 But I have like um other other things like there's already things that exist in the treetops um on this property that I I hold there and you know that comes from um you know there's the aunties in the trees that they gossip to each other and I see them when the wind's blowing but it's the trees lean over and whisper to each other. And they're like they're saying stuff about they're making a bit of a, a commentary, and to me that seems just completely real. Like you know, there's no question that the aunties in the trees are having a friendly old gossip. But you know, in that same way, I feel like Benny is really um, present around the property. So. Mm. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, I. I'll perhaps talk a little bit about my own experience with the property and, and Benny um, afterwards, but um, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for that opportunity and, um, and thanks so much for sharing that story today. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Um, thanks for, for listening and sharing my story to you. All right. Thank you. Uh, welcome back. Lots to talk about there. And perhaps I'll just begin by talking a little bit about my own experience, which I, I think I referred to with Lib, with Benny. So I did a therapy session with Libble and Benny before Benny passed. And uh, that was quite profound for me. Or, or perhaps I'll just say, you know, it drew a little bit on sort of ancestral stuff because some of my ancestors are Irish horse people, basically. And um, and I was sort of drawing on that a bit and also through the session became aware of Benny's history in a kind of felt sense that I confirmed with Libble later. The, that generated a lot of kind of empathy for me with Benny. And Benny had some pretty difficult, she had a very difficult history um, prior to working with Libble and living. Um, I, I was doing that session and, and Lib, I was with a couple of my sisters uh, who were participating also and uh, while 
Lib was taking us through a guided meditation session, making an effort to be attentive. And I heard a horse behind me and it was, it was just kind of uh, clopping its hoof down on the ground as though to draw attention and making that kind of <laughs> sound that horses make. And I, because I was paying attention to Lib, I didn't sort of turn around and, uh, you know, ask the horse what it wanted. But it, part of me was like, oh, it's a bit odd that there's a horse there. Um, and as the session sort of um, concluded, I said to Lib, oh, I said this right, I turned around and um, there, there was no horse there. <laughs> and there hadn't been a horse there. Well, there hadn't been the horse that I thought was there, there. And uh, and I said to Lib, I, I thought I heard a horse. Um, and she said, oh, it's interesting that you heard that too. And we talked about it afterwards and, um, you know, and then Lib spoke about that experience that she referred to in the interview of feeling and sensing and, and indeed hearing Benny around the farm. And it would seem that I had the same experience. Yeah, so, and, and I don't have those kind of experiences. That's the kind of only real ghosty experience that I, if you want to call it that, you know, there are other explanations and, and you know, they're, they're fine. But uh, that's the only one that I have that I can think of offhand. Anyway, um, just going back, you know, to the beginning of the interview, Lib was talking about Bluebell and that, that kind of violent interruption while she was daydreaming in the grass. What came to you when you were listening to that? Yeah. Oh, gosh, when I was hearing that story, I thought perhaps how we often have romanticised notion of what it means to be out in nature, in inverted commas, or with animals, etc. Mm. And I'm not to saying it's not to say that those beautiful and expansive and wonderful experiences can't occur because they can and they do. Mm. But um, I think some of the things Libu mentioned later about um, engaging all of your senses, learning to engage all of your senses are, are really pertinent there because she's describing a state really where in actual fact she was a bit disengaged and, uh, and uh -huh. also a circumstance um, she describes also a bit later about what animals can share with us, what we can learn with them, developing listening, all this stuff about sensory business and paying attention and uh, and what we can learn for them. And the, this first message that well, that she goes back to as an introductory kind of experience was really one about her very strong language in no uncertain terms about boundaries coming yeah. from Bluebell, the Shetland pony. Yeah. Yeah. Pay attention. Mm. Well, you know, whether Bluebell had a, a formulated kind of intention like that or whether that's just kind of behaviour that is instructive by effect after the effect yeah I, I think when horses are doing things like that they're they're saying something yeah it might not necessarily be something that we might be able to articulate in words but uh, mm. when you watch animals interact um you know messages like that are back off go away you're in my space yeah uh, i'm uncomfortable about this all of that sort of thing and then she goes on to describe bluebell and uh, yeah, this is a horse that has uh, issues with boundaries, perhaps, mm. you know, from a previous history where there was good reason. Mm. Yeah, I'd, I'd like the expression behaviour is communication. And, yeah. um, and it brings to mind the, the horses running back and forth to yes. the barn where... 
It's such a deliberate um, thing. That's right, yeah. And, and, and you could just say, oh, look, they're running back and forth. But no, they were communicating. They're saying something, either that they're yeah. worried about it or that they want her to know about it or, you know, she talks a little bit about um, having been accepted into Bluebells, uh, not Bluebells, um, into Benny's herd. Mm. But it seemed to me hearing that also that those horses had accepted her as as part of the milieu of people that they interact and communicate with. Mm-hmm. And that, that was a very clear sense of communication. Absolutely. However we choose to interpret it, that I think there was communication happening. Yeah. In a, I, I think from their point in a, a willful sense and yeah. from our point in a, or, or from liberals at the time point in a understanding what's going on here sense. Mm. Oh, and I think this is one of the things about that approach, um, that working with horses in that way, you are drawn back into the ways in which, as humans, we are communicating through our behaviour that, in a way that many of us are not familiar with. And or we're always not even aware that they're doing or that we're that's doing. Right. Yeah, yeah. And once you start down that road, mm. <laughs> we're, um, we're communicating all sorts of things, yes, aren't we? Yes, yeah. behaviour has meaning. All the time, it does. <laughs> like yeah. You said behaviour is communication and uh, yeah. why is that? It's because behaviour has meaning. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, it is funny to reflect on, I guess, Libel's stories around the full spectrum from um, the romantic moonlit walk right through to the nature is brutal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Nature will kick you in the the guts if it has to. What's interesting is, for me, it started out with the... Perhaps a bit of a romanticised notion. It very quickly became nature is beautiful. Yeah. But it didn't deter her. <laughs> and probably sometimes to Bluebell's chagrin, perhaps. Yeah. But she came through that with this really strong sense of wanting to investigate and connect. And the story of her and her sister going yeah. out into the moonlight was absolutely beautiful, I thought. And what was interesting was their sense of being taken or taking themselves into another state of being. Mm. And there was a quite, maybe not planned out as being a ritual, but it, it almost became one, this sense of, a, you know, it's out of the normal space and time. Mm-hmm. It's the time when you don't normally go out there, you're wearing different clothes, mm-hmm. you're singing or making music, you're in a different space, you're experiencing everything in a different way. Yeah. And, you know, they did this more than once, so it did become intentional. Yes, yeah, I, and I just love how they wandered into that so naturally. Yes. Um, and the musical component um, fascinates me in, well, because of that behavioural thing that is music is also a kind of a, a communication in a way. Yes, yes. And I've heard a couple of stories recently, one from, I've forgotten which mob she's from, but an uh, Aboriginal woman from the Eastern States. Mm. Anyway, these stories, one of the themes in them have, have related to the benefits of singing to the places that we're in. Yes. Not in the yeah, places, wow. to the places. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the idea that, that those places uh, want to hear. Mm. That, that is to... active communication, intentional that's from right. us yeah, to them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That they're an active recipient. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know about you, but I can't... Um, singing is a little bit like a kind of communication that requires me to be a bit authentic. Mm. The only thing I can think of is, you know, when when you, 
For some reason, I'm thinking about this experience of showing your parents that you can you've pulled up a trick on your bike or something. Yeah. And and whenever you do that, um, after you know focusing and honing your skills, and then you do it in front of your parents and you fall off the bike, um, <laughs> because there's some valuable bit of focus was lost yes, in that right. demonstration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I'm sort of t- I've gone way off track here, but. I'm tying that into, uh, I guess, the... the Self-consciousness. Self-consciousness. That's a very succinct way of saying it. Because, yeah, it seems to um, interrupt singing for me. And I suspect there's something about singing as a form of communication that requires us to step outside of self-consciousness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Perhaps to, to get in a bit more of a, a sense of the zone, you know, total focus and yeah. Yeah. Um, immersion in the experience rather than being partially engaged with how that experience is coming across. And look, there is a link there, actually, because, you know, that is one of the things that being relational in the context of equine-assisted therapy, Mm. but actually just being relational um, benefits from going in with a sense of authentic presence. Mm -hmm. Lib has spoken either in the interview or, or, or at another time about well, we were talking, I suppose, about prey and predator relationships, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. one of the things she mentioned was that when you're relating in a deceptive way, mm. um, which we may be doing unconsciously, particularly if we're trying to demonstrate power, mm. um, the horse relates or understands that behaviour as predator behaviour, right? Yeah, um, because they're they're sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. Because they need to be. Does that yeah. make sense? Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, they've got to have a real clear feel, like their lives depend on it, which it does, for, mm. for what is and what isn't safe. So whatever those cues are that may even unconsciously go with the inauthenticity mm. or, or with a, even discomfort or fear, mm. they're probably going to pick up on that, I think. Uh, yep. A lot of us have uh, put those senses aside because uh, yes. we don't always have to use them in quite this with with quite the same immediacy that a, a prey animal does. No, no, that's a, I think that's a really good point. We're still animals, and we're still able to detect those things, which mm. is why sometimes we come out of interactions going, "Why do I feel upset?" Yes, you know, and, and it's <laughs> like because what something was there? going on there. Yeah, there was something going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think uh, she speaks in these encounters of feeling so alive. That was her words. And yeah. what does that say about us often in our everyday lives yeah. in this uh, completely, for the most part, artificial world that we've created for themselves? It's that all of those senses are blunted, yeah. A, because there's not the same richness of experience and, and B, because uh, we don't need them because we've created this safe world. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Yep. Is, is that safety always good? I don't know. Well, we, we need it when we're tired at the end of the day, don't we? Yeah, but um, yeah. we need the day as well. Yes, yes. You need <laughs> yeah. safety and you need not safety. Like yes. a, she was talking about that sense of alertness as being particular to prey animals. Um, yeah. And I think a, a lot of uh, predators have that also, particularly solitary predators or smaller ones. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was making me think of... When is and isn't safe for these different creatures, and for a herd animal, it might be when you're hoping that you can rely on your mates to 
warn you of shit going down. Yeah, right. And if you're a predator, it might be when hopefully uh, you're denned up somewhere and you can enjoy that little cave or that patch of sunshine. Or Yeah, I was thinking a little bit about this when um, observing my cat Mumu mm. recently just because she sleeps a lot. Mm. And I suppose sleep is a kind of luxury Maybe yes. afforded to the predator more than others. Mm, or sleeping alone a bit more whenever you like. Yeah. Well, yeah. interestingly, my neighbour, she's got two cats. She's just had a mate staying with a dog. Normally that mate takes the dog out during the day when she's out and about. She's had stuff whereby the dog's been in the house and uh, her cats that normally cope with the dog being away during the day but they're a bit during the evening have completely they've lost weight and they haven't been eating and they haven't been sleeping and they've been spending all their time outside it's not an aggressive dog yeah but it's just i think for them that sense of having something bigger and potentially scarier in their space okay yeah yeah it changes everything mm-hmm. um yeah i mean going back to the the thing about libel's attraction i suppose to bluebell's Harry Goblin. Yeah. <laughs> She's so really, that, really wanting to make connections. That's right, yeah. Bluebell so isn't. No. Mm. I guess I was thinking about that just from the, the point of view of childhood mm. and risk aversion. But actually, you know, there's a kind of natural fascination for risk that we have in yeah, a way. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't even put it as risk, um, but just for the wild that might be a little bit wilder than what you're used is to safe mm, yeah mm. yeah um, well I, I just see also a child naturally seeking connection to uh, another individual that's part of her milieu yeah and that's it led down the track to some beautiful things i'd be very curious mm. to know that the background of bluebill how bluebill came to be For sure. such an angry aggressive little pony mm. but uh Libel certainly took something from that by the by and uh, has transformed it mm. or, or has kept the best of it mm. and is now assisting others to make that connection, which is beautiful. And I think uh, then coming across a horse like Benny, who also had a difficult background, but then being able to develop a really powerful therapeutic relationship with that horse for, for I think it sounds like each other and also by extension for other people through the equine-assisted therapy yep. and how she was speaking about Benny as being a lead mare but also as an ancestor or having become an ancestor mm. uh, when she passed away, showing Libel this pathway to um, letting go. But it made me think that, you know, obviously horses and most other animals have got a much shorter lifespan than us. So when we perhaps in our you know, from 20-odd or onwards meet an animal that's of a similar age, they're at the end of their lifespan. Or if we meet that later, they've been born only partway through our lives, yet they're already an elder that we can learn things from. Yeah, isn't okay. that? Yeah. That was interesting to me. Yeah, and thinking about that in terms of lifespan, I mean, we we do, as we get older, mature and drop into elderhood, in our ways of relating, I guess. And mm. I guess what you're suggesting is that, um, yeah, in the twinkling of an eye or in a kind of sped up way, um, we're seeing that happen with... with an ho- animal can come in and... Horses and other animals. Bring some of that eldership in their 
shorter lifespans, mm. but at the same time they they may be ahead of us in some of these things. Yeah, there's a, an idea of the experience of time, which is apparently just an illusion anyway, being quite different for different animals. And and this is kind of relevant, I guess, when we think about those, those creatures that live only for a day. Mm. And, you know, the speculation is that, well, a day might seem like an awfully long time for those creatures. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. certainly the animals we have as domestic pets have a clear conception of time of day, mm. uh, what happens when during the day, whether it's what animals do what when or, you know, when the person comes home and is going to pet them and feed them and what have you. But I think there is for them also a sense of extended time and I think of the story of your sister and her dog and how when she had been away for a long time, her dog was kind of hurt and mm. distressed. And I've, mm. I've had that myself with a cat when I was overseas for six months. Okay. And, uh, I mean, lots of people would have experienced this yes. with their pets. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it's such an awfully long time. Mm. Yeah, whereas, oh. in, you know, I guess that kind of casual human hypermobile world, mm. I'll, I'll see you in six months isn't yeah. necessarily... Yeah. And there's that perhaps understanding that um, we will see each other again. Perhaps that's not there. Uh, mm. If it extends beyond a day-to-day situation, like yeah. on, on a day-to-day level, the, the dog or cat that's waiting for you at get home has got an expectation yeah. And then uh, all of a sudden that's not met for a long time. Yeah, and, you know, I think there's maybe humans are, you know, able to comfort ourselves with a kind of conscious narrative or story about what's happening in a way that doesn't quite work out for animals in the same way. That is, um, I mean, you know, I think when we're in a routine that involves mm. interaction with other people yeah. um, or other animals and that changes, um there is part of us that feels that outside of the narrative of mm. they'll be back at this time because I know that they've just flown to Sydney mm-hmm. for this reason or that. Oh, there's still a sense of there's, loss. That's right. We're still actually good. experiencing that, mm. um, but we can kind of console ourselves. Contextualise it somehow. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I was thinking uh, mm. about how Libble played, her sister played the violin or, no, played the flute. Just the flute, When yeah. they were doing their moonlight flits and yeah. then... Uh, Libba oh, would play the violin for the horse. Bumping into Dad out there. Yeah, that was fascinating. <laughs> I'd love to talk to Dad and find out what that was all about. Oh, that just... sense of a shared uh, family kind of dr- being drawnness to yeah. that experience or kind of experience. Yeah. Um, there was a, a show put on fairly recently, uh, which I think was fairly tongue-in-cheek. It was drawing on a particular scene in Highlander, which is a Netflix show, I yeah. think. Women in white dresses mm. um, around ancient stones with mm. Celtic folk music and kind of flitting about in the moonlight. And yeah, I think it's kind of um, easy to poke fun at these kind of simulations, but uh, from what somebody told me, I don't remember who, and I've forgotten the details are gone. Um, it was a hugely popular event. Um, so the, this event uh, was asking people to come along, a little bit like a Kate Bush kind of um, everyone turns up and All right. pretends to be Kate Bush. Right and, here, yeah. you know, but they, they did it with the Highlander theme. Apparently it was nonetheless quite profound and moving. Oh, how lovely. And funny at the same time. Yes, Which yes. is fine. You Why know? can't those things coexist? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, yeah, I, I guess uh, listening to Libble's story, I, I want to wear a white sheet and get on a horse in the moonlight and 
Have Take it for a test drive, Dan. Yeah. Report yeah. back. Yeah. All right. <laughs> this is your Celtic ancestry speaking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I heard a wonderful saying that made me chuckle. And it was about this kind of thing. And uh, I'm not saying that everybody's necessarily going to end up as a pagan, but this person said sometimes people start out as plagans and they end up as pagans. Uh-huh. <laughs> and yeah. I think uh, that's to do with that sense of seeking connection and meaning. Yeah. And that's, that's a profound experience we can have as humans. And all too often it's, it's pushed aside for the mundane, but it's a possibility within us and it could can exist, I think, as a way of both enriching your world and also making you more functional within it. Yeah. Yeah, and there's something about the fact that we centre this stuff around children. And I, I guess, you know, Libel's story is about two young girls yes. who go out and, you know, are quite naturally falling into that space where it's it's play, but it's also ritual or, yes. or you know, ceremony. There's no kind of... And it's powerful experience. It's still it's powerful, powerful experience right. that stays with them throughout the lifetime. Yeah. And so when we were doing the Animal Stories Project, mm. I remember doing uh, research on comparable things or similar things, mm. just literature that was around people's relationships with animals or, yeah. you know, just popular culture around that. So often it's understood as being for children. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I, I got quite frustrated by that in the end because it was like, well, hang on, what? Are we meant to grow out of this? It's like we're meant in order to participate in the modern world yeah. to lose our sense of wonder and connection yes don't have people with wonder and connection you don't want that they're trouble that's right well and also i think um there's something very open about it isn't isn't there and and you know that that kind of that kind of deception or self-deception that or self-denial yeah i i think when you leave that behind it's a kind of self-denial it is isn't it yeah. Yeah. And, and there's sometimes, I think, a sense of, a, well, if you're engaged in that kind of uh, experience, you've sort of got to go a little bit cautiously about how you describe that in the greater world because it'll be dismissed. Yeah. Well, this ties in, uh, I mean, just to, to bring up a conversation we had in the car on the way here, mm. you know, there's, there's this kind of explosion of ideas and counterpoints to dominant ways of being in, mm. in the 1960s that, gets summarized as hippie culture that um is now kind of a really handy way to dismiss things Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know you're just being hippies there well i guess if we go back to behavior has meaning there there was a reason people were looking for you know what is described as counterculture there's something about culture that wasn't working for them and they were actively mostly looking for alternatives Uh, and i don't think that um sense of uh, culture not always fitting perfectly for everyone has necessarily gone away some of it has been addressed to some degree but other aspects of it haven't and are ongoing and are in some ways in fact worsening yeah so i think it's natural for people to seek alternatives and uh, I, I think you know sometimes that's going to be hokey or exploited or exploitative because it does occur within the context of the greater culture. Yeah. And that is largely predicated upon consumption yeah. at this point That's in right. time. 
Yeah, so um, so nature connection becomes like mindfulness, I guess, in that it you know it's it gets you know, co-opted. I'm not gets not against mindfulness. I think it's fabulous. No, no, no. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of like a, there's so many mindfulness businesses out there, and yeah. now there's nature connection businesses. And yeah. should we be against people making a crust out of these things? Not necessarily, perhaps, but uh, no. Some of it is a bit uh, well lightweight, naive. I don't know. Yeah, it's There's more a, about, I suppose, what happens to it in the process, isn't it? And, yeah. you know, I think it's reasonable for people to to want to make. Is it, a is it serving connection with the world, or is it just mm. serving uh, something? Mm. Yeah, <laughs> it's a depressing note to end on. We can't leave it there. On that note, come to our free <laughs> nature connection session. Right. <laughs> Sign I, up. I, I saw the Port Adelaide Environment Centre. They're doing some great work at the moment. They've got this. Connect with the nature. I think it's almost exactly the same phrase we were using. Yeah, yeah. This has got a qualified connect with nature person. It's going to cost you five bucks, which is cheap. Five bucks. That's, That's great. Good. Yeah. But, uh, um, yeah, it's good. Mm. Do you have to be a qualified person to? Yeah. Does it have to well, fit that's into what we someone's do. connect with nature business? It becomes a specialisation. Yeah. It's the processes, I suppose. Um, Better go to TAFE and learn how to connect with nature. That's right, yeah. No connection with nature unless you've got a university degree. <laughs> yeah, or um, I, I did an online course. Wow. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> so I can teach you mindfulness. Thank heavens. Yeah. To us, us jaded curmudgeons. <laughs> On that curmudgeonly note... Maybe we should go and connect with Nate having lunch under a tree. Yeah, I'm hungry. <laughs> um, my, my, my senses are telling me that I should eat food. It's time to eat. Mm. All right, well, maybe um, let's leave it there for yeah. today. Can you think of a roundup then? <laughs> no. Let's ride off into the moonlight and, um, and leave it to the listener to make the most of that incredible interview. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. Did you go out and look at the full moon? No. It was pretty amazing. And the eclipse and... Yeah. That's no, I just forgot. Yeah. 2025 now. Oh, it's a bit of a wait. Mm. Oh, it's not that long.